0: Well, hi, everybody. My name is Mark Graben. Welcome to our Kinexus webinar titled The Three Primary Assumptions of Successful Lean Leaders. It's going to be presented today by our guest, Jacob Stoller. So let me now start uh, by introducing our guest. Jacob Stoller is an author, speaker, and consultant specializing in communication between experts and outsiders in areas such as lean management, information technology, accounting, and engineering. A frequent commentator in the business press, Jacob has delivered a variety of learning events in Canada and the U.S. and has authored reports, training materials, and other corporate documents for clients such as Microsoft, Dell, Staples, Pitney Bowes, and the Conference Board of Canada. And Jacob's recent book, which I, I highly recommend, is called The Lean CEO, where he uses CEO narratives to bridge the communication gap between lean experts and the general business community. So with that, welcome, Jacob. I will hand things over to you.
1: Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, it's it's great to be here. And uh, maybe the listeners aren't aware of this, but almost exactly a year ago, uh, I, Mark, and I did a, a podcast together and discussing the Lean CEO, and it was just about to hit the bookshelves at that point. So here we are, a year later, and uh, really happy to say that. Uh, uh, the feedback you get from a book that you've written from people is just amazing, and uh, it's an amazing learning experience. So I'm really happy to be able to share some of the of that experience with you, some of what people have told me and some of what's resonated. It really is reflected in what we're going to talk about. So um, let's uh, get right into it. Uh, I've used maybe a loaded term here uh, in the title. Uh, primary assumptions, and I want to tell you uh, just right off the bat um, what that's about. Mark, could you change the slide, please? I uh, confronted this whole thing of assumptions uh, sort of dramatically uh, when I was uh, in a a plane, actually flying back from Hartford, Connecticut, uh, back home to Toronto. And this is not, uh, this was last November, Uh, not a very popular route, so you know you get uh, on these little planes. It's called a Beech uh, 1900D. And those of you who fly to different factories probably uh, fly in these things a lot. But anyway, um, we took off from Hartford, and everything was uh, was pretty normal. Um, we get to cruising altitude. And then three things happened at once. Uh, the uh, plane starts lurching around. And at the same time, there was this horrible crunching metallic noise um, coming from the exterior of the, the plane, and, and finally, when we looked out the right window, we could see there was smoke and flames coming out of the right engine, so not, not the sort of thing you want to have have happen uh, when you're, when you're uh, in the air, but uh, the good news is that it all passed by very, very quickly. Uh, within seconds, uh, the plane had stabilized, uh, they had shut down the right engine, and uh, there we were. Uh, sort of flying along, and needless to say, we made an emergency landing uh, in Albany, New York. And and I tell you, you know, you make these emergency landings, you really get the well, the big welcome, you know, emergency vehicles along the runway, the whole works, right? So anyway, we we landed, uh, you know, very nicely, uh, taxi to the end of the runway, and then they uh, basically they they. The, the plane uh, gets off the runway and they shut it right down. That's that's how they do it. Um, so, now here's the interesting part. So, uh, plane stops, the uh, curtains open, the pilot comes out of his cockpit, and of course we gave him a, a applause because he did a fabulous job landing the plane. But then um, he started to talk to us about what was, uh, uh, you know, about the whole incident. It turns out that the pilot knew much less about this failure of the aircraft engine than we did. He didn't know anything about the smoke and flames coming out of the exhaust. He didn't know anything even about the crunching metallic noise. All he knew was that the oil pressure gauge had dropped suddenly, dramatically down. Suddenly it just fell. And he, without question, had just, uh, without even thinking, had shut down the engine. You know, it's the, I guess what fascinates me is that just this little sliver of information um, uh, he used to make this really, really important decision. So I called up my brother-in-law, who uh, happens to be a flight instructor, and, and, and told him about this. And he said, absolutely. He said, if you're a pilot, uh, it's an absolute primary assumption that you follow your instruments. Uh, there's no question about it. That's the way to get home. And he pointed out that if you're a flyer, you can get into all kinds of situations where your senses can completely fool you, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I mean by primary assumptions. You know, what are the things that we absolutely uh, assume without, without even thinking? We, of course, have to have assumptions like this uh, when we're running a business. Um, and uh, the, the basic assumption uh, that we have. So this. Command and control dashboard, if you will, is is I call it Sloan's dashboard because really it was developed at General Motors uh, under under the uh, supervision of of Alfred Sloan. And he was very proud of this, uh, of having developed a system where you could uh, issue commands and you could look at results, mostly financial results, and that told you what you needed to do. Uh, He was very proud. If you read my years with General Motors, you could see he was very proud of that. He was very proud of the fact that there was no need to go to Gemba. You didn't have to go to the workplace because you had the perfect uh, system that reported and and the controls and all that to make that work. Primary assumption. Financial reports tell the truth about the business. That's the primary assumption that they teach in business school. That's the way uh, Sloan ran the business, okay? Now, um, the bad news uh, is that financials don't tell you everything. Uh, And uh, as we all know, I think, from our history, uh, General Motors did really fantastically well until about the early 70s, and here you started to get all kinds of problems. You get uh, fuel prices uh, skyrocketing with OPEC, all of a sudden the the growth of suburbia, which just saw no end, is is starting to stabilize. And then guess what? Uh, Competition. We start to see these Toyotas and these Hondas showing up on American roads. So the whole climate got very different, and uh, while the executives were wondering what in the world was going on, um, along came Dr. Deming, who who pointed out that your companies have big problems. So a lot of this stuff that we uh, uh, took for granted, I guess, uh, there were all kinds of problems that didn't show up on the financials. So, for example, American factories, as we know, uh, had all kinds of variation, you know, the the quality of these these cars was really terrible when you compared them to the emerging world standard. Um, waste was rampant when when people walked into factories, uh, and 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 finally, you know, employee disengagement was was huge. Right, you you had people very very unhappy to work uh, at a place like General Motors, as Peter Drucker very aptly pointed out. So uh, again, these are problems. That did not show up in the numbers. And, and Dr. Deming said it beautifully. 97% of these problems are going to be invisible if you're just looking at the financials. So that really is the backdrop, uh, for my book. Uh, the, the people who developed lean, uh, really developed it out of crisis, if you will. Uh, that's again to quote Deming and, uh, you know, for example, uh, Pat Lancaster of Landtech. Uh, had a company which was was full of that kind of waste, as he described it. But, uh, uh, you know, he had a monopoly, because he uh, he invented stretch wrap, and there was no competitors. And so, while that whole, during that whole period, he could basically, the company was very profitable. But when it became competitive, and when the copyright, you know, the patents ran out, then he was uh, in a position to to have to compete on a global basis. But uh, that's a great quote. He also is an amateur flyer, by the way. And he said something that I love about Sloan's dashboard. He said, said, I don't want to say this too strongly, but I really think that if you drive your ship or fly your airplane based on the two instruments of standard cost and MRP, you'll pretty much drive yourself into a waste condition that is almost unimaginable. uh, that was one crisis. There were many productivity crises, et cetera. But the majority of the CEOs uh, did feel that there was a burning platform that compelled them uh, to adopt lean. So that's that's an important part of the book and, and sort of the or- organizing theme there. So um, from uh, the CEOs, by the way, uh, I expected when I did the research that they would be pretty darn similar. You know, I had this idea, oh, yeah, well, there's going to be a, uh, a sort of a profile of the, the humble lean leader and all this kind of thing, right? But I found out that the personalities were very, very different. And I think um, for all of you who know some of these people, you know, you look at this list and you could say by no stretch of the imagination is uh, George Konikseker, uh anyone, any at all like Bob Brody, right? Uh, they just completely different personalities, and, and you look through it, and that's uh, pretty darn consistent. So uh, really, I think the beauty of this and, and the exciting thing about Lean is that these these leaders did find their own ways uh, to do this, and they did it in very different ways with different sequences, uh, different styles, solving different problems, whatever. It really is one of the things that shows the enormous power of Lean. Um, but um, there was a commonality, I think, in terms of beliefs. And uh, you know, they did believe in certain things about running the company. And that's really what we're going to talk about. Three primary assumptions for running a business. And, and this is really, again, from looking at the transcripts really carefully saying, what do these people really share? Uh, what comes up again and again uh, in the transcripts? And I found out uh, you know, there was a, a, a way, the way they handled information was very important. So there's an assumption, primary assumption, about information. Um, underneath that information, uh, there's a primary assumption about process that gives the information that context. And and last, but certainly by not means the least, as a matter of fact, last but most important, it's a very, very primary assumption about people. So let's look at all three of those. Uh, first, there is a bit of a disclaimer I want to throw here, or whatever, maybe disclaimer is not the right word, but uh, there are many companies out there that are that are making lots of money by doing things that don't make customers very happy, right? So you might have uh, a, a telco, for example, that's in a re- re- you know has a monopoly or close to a monopoly in some region, and they're charging outrageously high prices and customers hate them, right? Um, so, so that's that's a kind of a thing where um, you know you're not going to get lean thinking very often. And uh, Fred Reichelt, uh, in in um, the ultimate question talks about companies corporations being addicted to bad profits and I think there's a lot more of that than we would like to see, you know, whether it's airline fees that are that, you, know, you feel they're gouging you or whatever. So I think we have to take that off the table because uh, any company that's making money um, uh, by not making, you know, not necessarily making customers happy is not likely to have any kind of appetite at all for the 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 sorts of challenges that lean provides. So I just wanted to make that clear. Uh, So let's go to the primary assumptions then. And uh, the first is that customer value is the primary dashboard for success. Now remember what we've done? uh, We've taken uh, you know we're no longer relying completely on the financial reports, right? So we're kind of flying blind. How do we know that we're we're moving forward? Well customer value does become that primary metric. So uh, in the book, it really becomes uh, uh, an exercise of what I would call radical transparency because uh, you have people going out into the gambit to see what's really happening with the business. And uh, as I think uh, you rea- we all realize, uh, it's, a, it's a question of finding out um, what the real problems are. Uh, so those problems that we talked about, waste, uh, customer dissatisfaction, uh, or, or employee satisfaction variation, all that—those all become very, very visible when people are uh, spending time in Gemba. And by the way, that's the most consistent behavior of all, right? Most consistent behavior, um, really, in the book was that the CEOs really did spend time um, out there uh, in the workplace. So um, that's actually not. Uh, uh, a very easy way to to run a company. It's it's very uncomfortable for people with traditional business backgrounds. Uh, You you have, for example, uh, there we go, uh, jumped one on me there, Uh, people used to uh, again just looking at results and issuing commands so that's what they tell you in a traditional organization. Um, I just want the results, Don't, don't, uh, don't tell me anymore. Uh, and then they tell you what to do. But uh, of course, in a lean organization, we're we're really changing the whole nature of communication. And and we can we can explain it in various ways. Uh, you know, flipping the pyramid or whatever. People have different ways of describing it. But here, we have management. Really, their job is to tell what we're trying to do—the true north—and they are going to be hearing problems all the time. So you're not seen as a non-team player when when you. Uh, <laughs> when you report problems. That's, that's what you, you need to do. So uh, it's not easy to do. And, and uh, one of the CEOs that takes it really, really personally is Carl wadenston He's the uh, CEO of Vico. And uh, Carl uh, says, you know, this is not for the weak of heart. This is so hard every single doggone day. Lane will surface all your shortcomings force you to deal with all the details. And uh, by the way, you should see Carl's office. You know, he's, he's got it right out there in the plant, and all the walls are glass. You know, so uh, he's got no escape from reality. Um, I, maybe it's why he wears the army helmet and jokes around a bit, but he makes himself very accessible and really uh, does learn about all the problems in the organization. So uh, of course, when we don't have the financial dashboard anymore running the business, we need something else. And uh, Art Art Burn provided such a great teaching model, I think, for Lean with Wiremold. Uh, for all of you who don't who maybe don't know Wiremold, it's that that's one of the iconic Lean stories. They're an electric electrical components manufacturer based in in Hartford, and uh, Art took over as CEO in 1990. And in that 10-year period, um, he uh, multiplied the value of the company from around. 30 something million to 770, so huge success by uh, growing his market organically and also acquiring many companies and using lean um, to make them more efficient. Now uh, these five uh, tools, these five metrics here in the dashboard are not the kind of thing that you just see in a report. These are for everybody in the entire company and he had his whole management team reporting every week on these metrics. That's how he ran the business. So, you know, customer service percentage, we're going for 100%. He said, there's no reason why you should promise to deliver something and then not do it. Quality, very, very aggressive, you know, cutting by 50% every year. You know, you hear organizations talk about 10% improvement in in improving defects. Uh, Much, much more aggressive. Productivity, very, very aggressive targets with tap time. Uh, Inventory turns a huge, very famous target because he was at three. Did he go to four? Um, by the way, I just read a business study about a success story about a company that went from 3 to 4. Well, Art went from 3 to 20. So uh, very, very dramatic uh, improvements here. And again, everybody reading off the same script. So uh, now it's very easy for organizations. Let's see. I hope it's going to there we go, uh, to promise to, to add all these things. And I think what we see in a lot of organizations that do lean in a sort of a casual way, if you will, is that they, uh, they'll add some metrics, say, sure, yeah, let's, let's put add inventory terms to, to what we're doing, and then and we'll continue to do all the other stuff. But uh, uh, with, when Art started with Wiremold, uh, a manager uh, asked him, uh, you know, in the first week. you said, okay, if we're going to go after all these value stream metrics, does that mean that I still have to write my uh, management report, uh, my 25-page uh, financial report every month? And uh, Art said, well, you can write the report if you like, but I can guarantee you that I won't read it. And, you know, interestingly, Mike Clomack uh, said a very similar thing by Ingersoll Rand. And uh, of course, Ingersoll Rand, with fifty thousand employees, he's he's doing this on a very very large scale. So they're they're doing uh, going value stream by value stream. Um, but when a value stream signs up for the operational excellence program um, at Ingersoll Rand, uh, they the thing that Mike tells his managers is, don't look past the results. You know, and that means, in other words, that you don't have to. To worry about all that financial stuff that you used to worry about, you just focus on the lean results. You do what we're doing. You stick with the program, and that's going to get you your results. So it's having that confidence in the lean and in the lean numbers that you're going to get. Uh, that's that's really key here. Um, now, of course, well, none of these uh, value stream metrics make any sense at all if you if you've got silos, right? So yeah, we can we can we can get rid of some bottlenecks in production and maybe we improve proof efficiency by 10%, but it, it may well be that uh, the customer doesn't see any of that because we still got uh, bottleneck like in procurement or engineering or whatever, right? So uh, a really important part of these lean transformations that we saw is being seeing the whole value stream. In fact, right? like that was a turning point in a number of the stories um, when they reorganized, restructured into value streams. They were able to really make... Um, Gains that that could be seen by the customer. Finally, on the uh, on the dashboard side, I, I want to talk about accountability because that's such a big deal here. Uh, what you're accountable for, and 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 things like that. And um, Jim Lancaster, who is the CEO of LandTech, really said this very well. Jim is actually in a unique situation because he uh, took over a successful lean transformation from his dad. Uh, that, that's Tech which I, I mentioned earlier. And, and um, when on, after Jim had taken over, the company hit a sort of a plateau where the, all the gains and all the wonderful magic that was coming from Lean actually uh, started to slow down and uh, actually actually started losing some of it. And uh, he got very, very concerned. Now, but Jim was a traditional MBA, so he tried a lot of the traditional stuff, uh, right, where you know, people said, well, you've got to be tougher on people and uh, he went and he hired some managers that were enforced that you know known for enforcing targets and saying you better hit your number this month or else kinda of thing and event um, none of that was working so eventually he uh, in his own words uh, put on his steel toe shoes and spent an entire year in the factory he, he uh, uh, delegated all his uh, his CEO duties and, and the outshoot of it is that he um, really wound up having some profound uh, sort of aha moments, I guess, about accountability and, and what accountability really means uh, in a lean environment. And uh, I love what he says here. Uh, he says accountability is not about setting goals and then shaming people who don't hit the goals. Accountability is about making sure that everyone understands what we're trying to do. So. Uh, you know, I, I asked Jim, I, I, I thought this was, uh, you know, I love the way he said this, but I said, Jim, what happens if a manager makes a mistake? And without missing a beat, Jim said, if a manager makes a mistake, it's because they didn't have the information they needed to make the right decision. And, you know, I thought that was really, uh, really amazing. He really does put accountability at, at his own doorstep. So um, that, brings us to really, uh, again, waiting for this slide to click here, but uh, it brings us to the next uh, uh, layer here, if you will, and this is the process piece that makes all this information make sense. Okay, Uh, This is really the context, and I've chosen my words carefully here, but I'm saying that continuous improvement of people and processes towards an ideal state leads to sustainable results. So you know, all that has to be there uh, to make sense out of this. And I uh, just, just want to take it apart a bit here, because this is a piece that a lot of traditional business people have trouble with. You know, we're saying that we're going to develop people. You know, we're not going to, you know it's not like a, an airplane dashboard where you push a button and the engine shuts down, right? It's all very indirect. We're going to develop people so the people improve the processes in order to derive results. So and even then, uh, you know the results we're seeing from improving these processes are even somewhat indirect you know reducing waste, improving cycle times uh etc uh getting rid of all the bad stuff and and that means we can avoid capital costs, we can avoid adding headcount, and uh eventually we see uh, a much better bottom line we first we generate tons of cash, of course because we're not wasting space and resources uh margins improve, and then we become very, very strongly competitive. Uh, Mike LaMac said something very hilarious. You know, he said when he explains what Ingersoll Allrand is doing to some of these financial people that he meets, uh, they say, "You know, why are you going through all this trouble?" I said, "Why don't you just do a big, uh, do a big restructuring and get it over with?" So that's uh, that's going to be, uh, you know. Uh, the kind of resistance you see. And uh, Brian Walker has another great story about this. Uh, uh, Herman Miller, as you may know, one of the iconic uh, success stories of Lean. Um, he, uh, Herman Miller is, I believe, the first, uh, the first Toyota reference site uh, out, uh, outside of the automotive industry. But uh, anyway, um, Brian had to fight some battles uh, earlier on with his board members. And, and Mike, he's actually got a sense of humor about this, but he said he'd have conversations like this, you know, he would say. Someone would ask him, um, this lean thing you're doing, uh, when are we going to be done? And, and, and Brian would say, uh, we're never going to be done. And they would say, okay, well, when are we going to know that we're sort of on the right track with this? And Brian says, I can't exactly tell you this because we don't know what success is going to look like, et cetera, et cetera, right? These things would go on and on. So eventually, Brian said, "Okay, I'm going to really, you know, I, I really better show them something." So he invited the entire board to come visit um, a a plant in, in West Michigan. Well, he brings the, he flies the whole board in. They they meet together. They go out to this this uh, the site of this plant, and he walks right up to the factory door, and he says, "Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this is the advantage of lean." And opens the door, and here's what they saw empty building. And so you got these board members just sitting there with their mouths open saying, What? An empty building? This is the advantage of lean. And Brian said, That's right. He said, Because three years ago, we bought this, we built this building, we filled it with equipment, and now over the last three years, we've used lean to move all the capacity out of this building into other existing facilities. So now, when it's time to expand, we can do it with no capital costs. That, said Brian, is the point where the board really got the picture. Now, um, the resistance is pretty tough uh, on the shop floor as well. It's not just board members. And Jim tells a great story about that. Now. Um, what Jim said told me is that a lot of times uh, the people it's hardest for is the middle managers, the people who sort of have their targets and used to, you know, seeing they get enough greens showing up on their board and they say, okay, well, we're, I'm okay for the month, sort of thing. But uh, what he what he found is that in the continuous improvement environment, they find it kind of kind of challenging. So what he does is he'll be doing his gamble walks, and if he sees an area where they've been posting all making their targets, in other words, all posting greens, he'll say, it's time for a cookie. And what he does is he goes and buys one of these oversized chocolate, chocolate chip cookies, right? And he brings it in, and he shakes the manager's hand, and says, OK, now it's time to reaverage the numbers. And of course, they re-average the numbers. The bar raises, and sure enough, the next day, there's going to be reds again, right? They won't be making the targets. But what he, has, what he says is hard for people to understand, and, and what's really important, is that reds are not bad. Reds are our friends. If we didn't have problems, we wouldn't have a reason to be here. Big culture change. Um, finally, this is very tough on people with professional training, and um, basically, uh, I could give you examples from pretty much any profession. But you know, HR, for example, it's customary for HR people they they go off to a conference and they they. Uh, they tend to workshop on all the latest learning methods, right? And then they're all excited. They come back and they sit in the office for two weeks and develop a great learning program about safety or team building or some darn thing, right? And then they want to go out and deliver that training uh, to their people. But in a, uh, a lean environment, continuous improvement environment, you really need these people out there solving problems because there's all kinds of problems emerging from all over the place, right? So it's changing that role, and it's very, very hard for people uh, very often. Uh, accounting is another great example. You know, uh, accountants love to go and tell people what all their problems are. And, uh, you know, it's really what you need the accounting people doing is, is you need financial advisors, right? You need them to come out there. Don't, don't you know, don't tell me what, what I should have done six weeks ago. Tell me what I need to do because I got this big project coming up. What's the most efficient way to do it? So you get some great examples of people in, in accounting, um, great aha moments of accountants doing that. Um, IT, I worked in it for years, and this is system-builder mentality. Uh, Really, you need the IT people providing real-time information to the field. And um, professionals, you know, leads to the whole uh, thing of physicians, uh, which is, uh, you know, really, I think, a very, very special case. I would refer you to uh, Mark's books here to, to really study that one, because it's a... Uh, it, it's quite quite an issue, but uh, I just I just want to tell you uh, uh, in in terms of continuous improvement, um, give a sort of a story about uh, what I think is a really a watershed moment, uh, and this was the the dawn of lean healthcare, and really uh, perhaps one of the one of the watershed moments. And this is where John Toussaint, really uh, of Theta Care, really began uh, using lean, and uh, he was facing the same. Kinds of uh, that healthcare conundrum that's, that's very common today, and and we still um, very very far to go with this, obviously, but where you have financial pressures and you have unacceptable outcomes at the same time. Uh, now, unacceptable outcomes, unfortunately, in healthcare means people are dying. And around the millennium, uh, when John took over as CEO of Thetacare, Care, uh, the uh, there was a report had come out saying that there were a hundred thousand. Deaths in American hospitals every year due to preventable medical error. That's how serious it is. And by the way, some people think the number is much, much higher that, than that. But anyway, um, what uh, John was frustrated about was that he had tried the traditional healthcare methods, uh, of improvement, quality improvement methods, as chief physician, and he found that the, the improvements he made uh, at care just weren't sticking. You know, they weren't maintaining. But he, he knew that outside of healthcare, there were all kinds of organizations that were doing a really, you know, quite a good job. You know, he said, How is it that aerospace, automotive, we've got organizations that are getting near zero defects, and here we are in uh, healthcare in the double digits? So, uh, needless to say, he started looking outside of uh, uh, healthcare at, at other organizations, and, and through actually John George Konigsaker, he wound up uh, looking at some lean organizations. Uh, so uh, uh, soon, uh, John and his entire management team went to visit uh, a lean factory. And this was Ariens uh, Snowblower Factory nearby uh, in Brillian, Wisconsin. And um, Arian's, by the way, is one of the stories also in my book, uh, The Lean CEO. So, um, anyway, you get this group of physicians uh, walking through a snowblower factory. <laughs> <laughs> kind of it might have looked kind of strange to a lot of people. Um, and and they, they tour the factory and they're pretty impressed. Uh, but they get to the, um, uh, the final assembly area, and this is really the, the big. Uh, aha moment for John. And, and uh, here what you had is the snowblowers are moving along on carts being assembled to get the final assembly is being done, all the options are being installed, all that kind of stuff, right? So uh, you, you, you see this happening, and John uh, has this flash. He said, you know, when I watch the way these people are working, um, they're taking better care of these snowblowers than we're taking care of our patients. So I thought that was quite a profound thing to say, especially because uh, he, John said his entire management team agreed with him. So um, I asked uh, I asked Dan Harrington about this afterwards. I said, Dan, I said, what did a bunch of doctors see in your snowblower factory? And and Dan said something really interesting. He said they weren't looking at the snowblowers. They were looking at the people. What they saw is people supporting each other. They saw the communication. They saw people handing each other tools on trays. That's what they saw, and I I th- I think that's profound, and I still do. You know, and and today, you know, you could go to an AIM event or uh, another uh, lean, any kind of manufacturing event, and you can see people from healthcare, from uh, industry, from uh, Financial industries, all going to the same workshops, all sitting at lunch talking about the same problems. So, you know, I think uh, Deming would smile about that (laughs) if he'd seen one of those events, but, you know, the fact that we should work on our process, not the outcome of our process, is just so incredibly important. So, of course, that leads us to the people that own those processes. And the whole bedrock of this thing, the thing that holds it all together, is that people have a basic Human need to do exceptional work. Exceptional means not just doing what you're told. This means doing, going above and beyond, and you know, offering your creativity, all this kind of thing. And that people will do this when the barriers are removed. So the job of management is to remove the barriers so that people can do what they really um, have have a basic human need to do. By the way, that's not, this is not just some kind of Thing you put on a wall plaque. This is scientifically proven. Uh, you know there've been psychological, you know, tests, clinical tests for the last fifty years that, that have proven that this is the case. So it's it's time that management really, it's caught up to this reality. Okay. So really, uh, you know, having said, any all anyone asks for is a chance to to work with pride. Um, I think. Um, some of you folks are aware of uh, Barry Waymiller, and that's Bob Chapman, who really uh, came to lean uh, really through a, de- a desire to make a more humane environment for his workers. Uh, you know, he found that that you know Barry Waymiller a very successful company uh, built with machinery and uh, you know taking companies and turning them around, but. Uh, he actually, you know, had a bit of, a, like I said, a bit of an epiphany in midlife, and and developed some some guiding principles around uh, people-centric management. But uh, it really took off when he actually started to combine lean with that, and it happened sort of by accident because they acquired uh, Mark Ward United, where uh, Jerry Solomon was actually leading the uh, the lean transformation there, and I don't, so you, some of you might know Jerry uh, through his. His books, but anyway, when when Jerry and Bob got together, it became pretty clear that that lean and people-centric management were a very very good match. But it really came to a head when they they did a pilot and um, they went uh, Bob and Jerry both went to a report out where where things were being presented and um, there was there was sort of a consultant that got up and presented lean. Um, the lean results for the first time, and and Bob had never seen this kind of thing before, but it was really about all numbers, you know, um, things like lead times and and, um, reducing inventory, and and interestingly Bob got very upset because he said, look, this has got nothing to do with people-centric management. This is all about numbers. Um, You know, this is not what I want to do. But it so happened that there was another presentation scheduled for the next morning, but this was not by um, by a consultant. This was by actual mine employees who had been brought sort of spur of the moment to come and, and present. So they get up there. Um, uh, it's, a, it's first thing in the morning. It's like seven o'clock in the morning, right? And there's all these people there because it was a president's meeting. So uh, these relatively unprepared workers get up and start to present, and it's it's all about these kinds of things: the numbers, uh, you know, lead times, whatever, uh, and Bob this time got up and interrupted the the, the presenter the presenter was called Steve uh, Bob said Steve how has this changed your life and so you can imagine you know first thing in the morning all these people there in a bit of a silence and then Steve sort of blurted out my wife is talking to me more and Bob's just stammered out what help me Steve what 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 do you mean and and um, Steve then told what Bob describes as one of the most profound stories he's ever heard. Uh, he said, well, Mr. Chapman, you know how it is. You, you go to work in the morning and you punch in your clock, and they tell you what to do. But uh, they don't give you everything you need to do it. But, you know you, spend, you, you know, you spend the day, you figure out how to do some things, and you get ten things right. But no one says a word, and you get one thing wrong, and immediately they're on top of you and they're chewing you out. And then they complain about your salary and they complain about your benefits. And you know what? At the end of the day, I wasn't feeling too good about myself. And and I was wearing that feeling home and it was affecting my marriage. And he said, but now um, with this new program, uh, I'm contributing to something. People ask for my opinion and they listen to me. And when I ask questions, I get answers. And then I get to see the results of the work we've done. And you know what? the end of the day, when I go home, I'm feeling much better about myself. And I'm nicer to my wife. And she's talking to me. So at that point, Bob turned to Jerry and said, Jerry, we have a new metric for lean, the reduction of the divorce rate in America. So the point here, folks, is that uh, people really do need to do work that has meaning. It's not just they want people to be nice to them. It's just they really uh, is a very basic need for meaningful work. And you just look at the Gallup polls, uh, and and they all say that, that 85% or whatever of employees uh, really go home not feeling that they're wanted or needed by their employers. So it's just a a, a very, very great human need. Uh, Now, it also happens that organizations need people way more than they think they do. And uh, my favorite example comes from John Toussaint, because I asked him about this. I asked him very innocently. I said, John, why um, do um, you know? Why do you need so many problem solvers in a hospital? And and John said, well, OK. He said, let's take an example. Let's look at medication error. That's one of the really the deadliest problems we have in a hospital.' he said. But if you've got a medication error problem, um, it could be. It can, it's not going to be one or two things, that a manager can find on a report. It's going to be lots and lots of things. So it could be the labeling on bottles. It could be the way bottles are arranged on trays. It could be the way bottles are in storage rooms. It could be written procedures. It could be in communications. It could be in the IT systems. It could be in the supply chain. It goes on and on. And the only way you're going to fix it is by having an army of problem solvers, all your employees, who are empowered and trained to take standard work, uh, to find the problems, to test the solutions, and make sure that problems don't recur. And that is how the gains were made at ThetaCare, and that's what John is teaching today. So, uh, And by the way, that applies to any industry. If you really want a company to uh, aspire to greatness, it's going to take thousands of problem solvers every day out there in the workplace. So this, folks, provides the basis for a lasting partnership between workers and organizations. You know, uh, they need each other, and I think it's a very, very powerful thing. Um, We can do much, much better at this this kind of relationship. Uh, And uh, basically, that's what I feel is the bedrock of this whole thing and, and, and of these core beliefs. So, I guess I would I would turn this over to you, and, and I would ask you, um, uh, you know, as, as people out there working with organizations and, and, and with Lean, um, is customer value seen through Gemba, your primary dashboard? You know, is that what's driving your company? Um, are you on a continuous improvement journey that never ends? And finally, are your people empowered to do exceptional work.
0: Okay, so we've got, uh, let's see, there's a bunch of questions here. One, uh, it says, uh, we, we, we all talk about lean, but thank you, thank you, thank you for mentioning Dr. Deming. That makes me curious, do you know how many of these CEOs knew of Deming and combined that with traditional lean methods?
1: I think the, uh, the awareness of Deming was certainly very strong in this group. Um, we we didn't actually. It's, it's interesting. Um, we we didn't talk explicitly about Deming. It was more that the conversations tend to be focused on um, what the companies uh, did. But uh, yeah, I would say that certainly the, uh, uh, the awareness of Deming was very high. Uh, in some cases, actually, it was it, uh, knowledge of Deming preceded Lean. You know, for example, as Mark as I know you. Re- you know very well with Bob Brody at uh, uh, Franciscan. Um, they 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 were using those methods for a while, certainly uh, John Toussaint as
0: well. Okay, I want to clarify. You said the rareness of Deming knowledge was strong. You mean a lot of them did know about Deming?
1: Yeah, awareness of uh, Deming awareness. was strong. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm sorry, I thought you said rareness. That makes more sense. The awareness was strong. Well, that's that's good to hear and maybe yeah. no, no yeah. surprise why they were successful with this. Um,
1: Yeah. 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 I think there's some depth here in their thinking and on, you know, they didn't just pick up a bunch of tools. These are people that saw the whole context
0: of it. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's a great lesson in and of itself. Um, We've got another question. Uh, How do you get people to feel safe speaking about problems when the current culture penalizes them for that?
1: Boy, I, you know, it's a, that's perhaps one of the reasons why the uh, the CEO buy-in is so important. Um, you know, and it, and and there are unlikely to be shortcuts to that. Um, you know, I I don't think I can. I don't think I would have a, a general answer to that in terms of drive out fear. But uh, even you know, of course, Deming was. Uh, I think put drive out fear, I think in one interview, mark, I think he was quoted as saying that was the most important thing to do, so it's a it's a very uh important question um but failing you know a very high level of support i it's it's hard to to see how you could do that
0: mm-hmm. now um I think well, let me transition so when we talk about you know the the need for change at the top, the top of most organizations isn't really. The CEO, it, it's the board. You mentioned, um, I, I think you mentioned John Toussaint's board. I know they played an important role. How many of these lean CEOs had a quote-unquote lean board, and what can we do to try to influence the boards to think this way?
1: Um, that's, that's a really good question. I, I'm, I'm thinking of some of the, uh, the public corporations here. I know at uh, in Ingersoll Rand there's at least one person that's, Quite uh, wrong with Lean on the board. Uh, I know Herman Miller had actually, and we talk about it in the book. They had Mary Ann Dringa on their board, and she actually pushed them for Lean. So uh, the board can can have a strong effect. I think you know, in the privately held companies, uh, the you know a lot of these companies were privately held. You know, the CEO has a certain amount of um, you know, maybe more latitude than they would in a a public company, and they could perhaps, I don't want to say override the board, but they're not as beholden to the board as, say, a public company would be. But uh, I think the board relationship is obviously an important one and and one that the the CEOs definitely cultivated.
0: Okay, we've got... um Let's see. Another question here. How, how can we create more lean CEOs? Um, do you, Practical question. And I do recommend your book, The Lean CEO, Jacob. Um, is, is this a type of book where, I mean, do you think if a, if a CEO is skeptical, skeptical about lean that reading this book might convince them? Was that one of the goals of the book? I guess there's two questions there. Can we create more lean CEOs? How does your book help uh, possibly do that?
1: Well, I, I think I, I certainly hope it helps because I think that one of the uh, things that changes people's behavior is stories and being able to identify with people. Uh, so, so, if somebody, uh, a CEO, is thinking about it and wants to see what it would feel like maybe to to be a lean CEO, I I, I believe and I've been told that this book really does give that feeling. So, uh, yeah, I, I hope it will certainly help. Uh, on that side, uh, more generally, how how do we get more lean CEOs? Uh, I, I I think this is probably uh, it's it's part of an evolution. I I I think that uh, times on our side, in a sense, in that companies are going to face more constraints. Um, you know, over the years, as the global economy uh, gets tougher, which which it will, um, I think there'll be more and more companies that have to deliver. Customer value. I mean, I think you know we have to point out that, that the CEOs that did adopt Lean, uh, a large number of them admitted that they wouldn't have done it. Um, and by the way, that includes even companies like Herman Miller wouldn't have done this without a burning platform of some sort. So uh, the real maybe the question is, are the platforms going to be more burning platforms? And and it would seem that there are. You know, the the kind of sheltered situations where you can. Um, avoid competition and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think uh, are going to decline um, over the, the next number of years. So yeah. um, I think we will be seeing more lean CEOs.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think I wonder how much of it will will take time. People coming up through lean organizations and then moving to other places where they eventually hopefully become a CEO, um, as opposed to the current CEOs changing. Because you know you talk about a burning platform. You know, I'm sure, I mean, you know, people, there's, there's a human tendency to stick with the status quo if the status quo isn't painful. Um, I don't think anyone necessarily of their own volition says, yeah, I'm going to totally change the way I operate and behave um, without some real uh, wake-up call. But, you know, it, it seems like a lot of these lean principles of being, uh, being humble, being willing to admit you don't know it all, um, a lot of these things kind of fly in the face of what's held up you know I, I went to business school and you know I you know what what's sort of held up as typical CEO behavior is not in line with lean. There's a question that just came in, is Jack Welch a lean CEO? I mean Jack Welch is the type of CEO that was held up as a hero in the late nineties when I was in business school. And I think he's, yeah. fir- he was successful, but I, I would say he's the furthest thing from a lean CEO. So I'm, I'm curious oh, yeah. what, what you think. Of yeah. And to that.
1: Yeah. I think the thing about Welch that maybe a lot of people don't realize is that when you look at where the profits were coming from uh, in that golden period, if you will, um, that was from uh, GE capital. In other words, uh, basically, what GE did at the time is they got into the banking business, and their advantage was that they were a, uh, uh, you know, doing banking business without having to follow a lot of the rules that regulated banks had to follow. And uh, when they got hit with that regulation in the early two thousands, uh, and started to behave like a bank, um, you know, follow the same rules, then then that profitability started to decline. So, you know, it's not like Jack Welch. Managed his way using, you know, you know, made all that profit. I mean, I think I, I, I think there are a lot of good things that have been said about him, but I think he might be uh, a bit overrated.
0: Well, because I mean, it's a thought experiment that we can never prove one way or another. You know, you might say, well, had Jack Welch not rejected Deming's ideas, because in one of Jack's books, um, he said, you know, well, oh, Dr. Deming, uh, he had good ideas, but they weren't practical. It was too theoretical. Like well, you know, no. but the thought exercise of well, maybe they would have been more successful and more profitable had they followed a lean path, had they followed Deming's ideas. GE eventually came around on lean, I think, under the Jeff Immelt um, CEO tenure. But we, we, yeah, we, we, they
1: they've come along. But even under under Welch's, uh, you know, I mean, a number of people like Art Byrne was working for GE, you know, under under Welch, and so there were there was learning going on. That that eventually made someone like Art uh, able to see, you know, to to appreciate Lean right away when he saw it. So, you know, I think there were some positive things. But uh, anyway, but uh, yeah, more Lean CEOs. We certainly need them. Um, um, I I think one thing you touched on is the whole generation thing. Um, uh, There are younger leaders that are are coming into the workforce uh, that are seeing things a little differently, and uh, you know, Mike Lamac is uh, of Ingersoll Rand. This is, you know, he's he's young for a CEO of that company, but he he learned um, he learned lean by working in the uh, the the Toyota supply chain, and that's where he first saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, he, he learned that at an early age as an engineer. So, you know, people who are exposed to it um, early in life, I think, maybe are more likely to become lean CEOs. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, there's one more question. I'm going to actually preface it. Um, So probably about nine years ago, I I did a a little bit of research and at least the companies in the early 2000s that had won the Shingo Prize for manufacturing excellence, um, at least the public lean companies underperformed compared to the stock market as a whole. Now, some of these were companies that were in decline, auto companies, and and there were you know were bankruptcies and, and things that you, you you might argue that that lean couldn't have saved these companies. But the the question that came in was you know of the companies, the public companies that you looked at, Jacob, do you know how they performed in the market or in other measures compared to the average company?
1: Um, well, the the performance uh, I, of the companies I talk to is really good, Mm -hmm. uh, public and private. But in in a sense, you know, I I have to be honest, that's a little bit of an artificial selection, because had they done badly, I probably wouldn't have wound up talking to them. (laughs) So it's not scientific at all. Um, So, uh, yeah.
0: Fair enough. Well, yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, Jacob, I want to, again, thank you for uh, being uh, our presenter today. I want to thank everybody for uh, attending. Um, I would encourage you uh, visit Jacob's website, JacobStoller.com. You, you can find him on Twitter. And it really is uh, a good read, uh, the book, The Lean CEO. A lot of great stories there. Might be the type of thing, I don't know, if you if you buy it and I guess you can't slide a book under your CEO's door, uh, maybe you can give it uh, as a gift. Um, thank you. And as a couple of people commented here, um, great job with your presentation, Jacob.
1: Well, thanks so much, Mark. And, and, and thanks for all that you do to promote uh, this this kind of thinking.
0: All right. Well, well, thank you. Thanks uh, for all of your work. And uh, thank you, uh, everyone. Uh, this is Mark Graven from Kinexus signing off.